0: is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Today's episode brings us to Edinburgh where Ian Campbell speaks with us about his travels through Pakistan, the holy mountains of Asia, and sketching instead of taking photographs while traveling. We also talk about his new book, From the Lion's Mouth, A Journey Along the Indus, which was shortlisted for the Stanford Travel Writing Awards Steps Travel Adventure Book of the Year. So now, here is Ian Campbell. Welcome to the podcast, Ian.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So your first book was With Unblessed Feet, uh, a book that deals with your quest visiting the holy mountains of Asia, um, from China to Turkey, and everywhere in between. Now you're back to the region and your newest book, From the Lion's Mouth, A Journey Along the Indus. So congratulations on the book, and uh, by the way, congratulations uh, for its nomination to the Edward Stanford Travel Writing Award.
1: Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm, I'm delighted about that.
0: That's good, um I want to talk about your new book, um, but first, because you're such a hard person to find online, can you explain to us uh, how you got here um here being uh, an adventurer and a writer? Did you study writing in a, in university
1: yeah well um i suppose i've I've not really had a, a formal education in writing um I studied history at university um so um, this is going back some years now, but um, I did modern history at Oxford University. Um, and in some ways, that was a pretty good education for for writing. The way in which history is taught there is um, well, relatively little teaching. So effectively, you get um, one hour a week um, in discussions with a, with a tutor and you present them with an essay that you've written on a subject um, every week. So you really have to produce... Of 2,000 words of copy and then defend it in front of someone who knows far more about it than you mm. uh, for an hour, and that's a pretty good education then for um, you know working on how to how to make a narrative clear, um, how to focus on you know the important issues and produce something that's that's hopefully readable. Um, I then I didn't go straight into writing at all. I I, I'm, I left university and made. Um, uh, what in hindsight was a was a terrible career mistake. Um, so I um, I decided that all, all the clever people seem to leave university and go and work for an investment bank. So I thought, well, if that, that sounds like it's hard to do, so I should have a shot at it. Um, so left university and went straight to work for Goldman Sachs, mm. uh, the infamous um, investment bank. You're a, um, a
0: doer of evil here
1: well exactly yeah the, the vampire squid as it, was, as, as it was called later on so i mean this was back in 2000 so um you know before the the financial crisis but still when it was a, a pretty big organization um and i realized in about two months in that i've made a terrible mistake and this didn't suit me at all and it was consuming my entire existence you know all my time um mm-hmm. was spent there and um I had no idea to, no time to do what I was really interested in. Um, so um, I, I was signed up for two years, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll get through that. And, and one of the things that really helped me get through it was um, a growing interest in travel writing. And I think it was it was those years at Goldman's that that really got me interested in the genre, um, because I, I needed some way of escaping from you know, the day to day. Tedium of um, you know discounted cash flows and mergers and acquisitions and um, and all these things um, and there were a few books then which really had a big impact on me. I mean I read all of all of William darymple's work um, which really um, chimed with me because he I guess was at a similar age when he first started writing with that um, amazing book in Xanadu. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was also a, a fantastic book that came out. I think just a, a year before I started work um, called An Unexpected Light by a writer called Jason Elliott um, about Afghanistan. Um, and it was, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful book. It's probably my favorite travel book. Um, and there was something about that book, which just allowed me to, to escape. And the way it was written was like nothing I'd really read before. So I, I decided, you know, um, i'll I'll see this out I'll do what I've um, signed up for, but then I'm off and I'm going to travel and I'm going to to write and and having that sort of prospect at the end of the two years, I think sort of really kept me going um and I was certainly hungry for that experience by the time it came around to do it
0: mm. and so you and around two thousand and two set off uh, for your journey from China to Turkey is that about right in terms of the timeline yeah
1: exactly yeah so within about um it was within weeks of leaving uh a desk job i was on on a flight to beijing uh with a good friend of mine who i've I've known for many years who was actually at school with me um uh, called simon crawshaw um and we set off and um made our way to, to Chengdu and the first of the Holy Mountains. So the, I should explain that the premise of the, my first book was to, to visit um, these holy mountains, which are sort of spaced along the, the ancient Silk Road. Um, and one of the things I sort of worked out is that um, all religions seem to share this sort of fascination and veneration for high places. Um, and I've always been a, extremely keen mountaineer and trekker and, um, mm-hmm. you know, living in Scotland, you've got easy access to, to the mountains. So I, I'd grown up going to the mountains and loving being in the mountains uh, and something about, you know, the idea that this was a universal uh, sort of religious or transcendent experience that pilgrims seem to experience across different religions. And my own fascination with the mountains made this sort of uh, something I really wanted to, to learn more about. So I went first to a, a holy mountain in China called um, Shan, which is a, a sort of a, a Taoist holy mountain. Mm-hmm. And then to Mount Kailash in Tibet, which is, um, it's venerated by Buddhists, by Hindus, by Bonists. Um, then to a mountain in Kyrgyzstan called Mount Sulaiman, which is a, a holy mountain for, um, for Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, and to a mountain in Iran, which is um, a Zoroastrian holy mountain, and then finally to to Mount Ararat, um, of course, the, the resting place of Noah's Ark, which is still still draws in Christian pilgrims from uh, across the world. Mm-hmm. So that was the the root of the first book.
0: What about the 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 general interest in in Asia is that something that you studied in university or did that come later while you were in your cubicle at Goldman Sachs reading the Eliot text <laughs> <laughs>
1: that um, that really came I mean it's it's always been there okay. um, I was I was trying to work out exactly when that started I, I'm not sure I can I can fully pin it down I mean. I, I do have these, these family connections to India. So my, my great-grandfather was an architect in Edinburgh, and um, he, um, like many sort of aspirational um, Scots, um, decided to go and work in India during the time of um, the empire. And he joined what was called the Indian Archaeological Survey. Um, this is going back to 1910, and... Um, And obviously, it meant a huge amount to him. He was involved in excavations in India. Um, He published a number of books on um, architecture and archaeology in India. Um, And in fact, it's amazing that he did all this in about uh, four or five years, because in 1915, he was then, um, he joined up and um, was killed in France in the First World War as, as part of a an Indian regiment of Gurkhas mm. um but obviously you did you know we have all these papers and there's still a, a memorial in Delhi uh, and he lived in agra for for his time in India and so I always had that connection so my um my first travel experience really was going to India um and visiting this memorial um and also I was um at university I was um, allocated to a um, Uh, To share a house with a number of of other students and one of them was you know one of my best friends to this day and his parents were from Chennai so he said right first some holiday we're all going to India we're going to explore so I think that that sort of connection was there for a long time and and India would you know was and Pakistan were, were places I just went to a lot the trigger then for you know, deciding to do this particular journey, which makes up my, my second book, mm-hmm. um, you know, why go this particular route up the Indus river in Pakistan? Um, it, it really came part of the way through the the journey for my first books. So I was,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I was in, I was in Western Tibet. Um, I mentioned that Mount Kailash with the second holy mountain I went to see that Mount Kailash is the source of the Indus river. Um, and I had this experience of traveling across Tibet for about 10 days so we've been in a jeep cooped up in a jeep um, and Tibet as as those who have been there will know is you know it's a it's a wonderful place it's spectacular but it is incredibly desolate um and you know the food is um well it, it's basically sort of uh, flour and yak butter is 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 the main staple diet so it's fairly bland um so I guess I was feeling by the time we got to Mount Kailash, a sort of, um, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of sense of homesickness. Mm-hmm. And when we got there, we, we arrived at the same time as these Indian pilgrims. And they rolled it up with these, you know, and they set out their cookers and they started cooking masala dosa and naan bread and these amazing aromatic curries. And, you know, I didn't feel homesick on the trip, but I almost felt like, oh, if only I were in India, then you know I would. You know that that food is something that really draws me, and I love that country, and almost that combination of being at the source of the Indus and this sort of this small, short taste of the Indian smells and scents and experience made me think. Right, the next journey is going to be one through the Indian subcontinent, um, mm-hmm. and that route up up Indus just um, made a lot of sense to me. So. When I got home from the Huli Mountain Journeys, you know, I wrote, I wrote the first draft of that manuscript um, and then started research for, for the second book, um, which basically takes me from the coast of Pakistan near Karachi, all the way up through Pakistan into the mountains, past Nanga Parbat, um, and then into Indian Kashmir, and then up onto the Tibetan Plata. Um So that was really how, I, how the second book came about.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the beginning of your second book, the the new book from the lion's mouth. Uh, I, I think I was reading too much into it, but it seemed to me a, a, as if um, you were in the middle of writing your first book, looking down from my, Mount Kailash, um, and and speculating or having this fantasy of, you know, following the river to its source. You know, then and there, in the middle of the narrative of your first book is that? Yeah,
1: that's how it, that's that's how it it felt at the time. I mean, Mm um, uh, yeah, it was the, the, the research for the first book was still fascinating, but, um, there was, there was something about the fact that India and Pakistan had been places where I felt familiar, Mm -hmm. that I felt, well, that's, that's where I want to, what I want to write about that as well. So the, 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 the sensations and the experience of writing the first and the second book were very different. Um, the first book, I was traveling with a friend. Um, the first book, I was traveling in countries where I couldn't speak the language. Um, and I was traveling in countries I'd never been to before. I'd never been to Kyrgyzstan or Tibet or Iran before. The second book felt much more um, of sort of a personal experience. I was traveling alone for the whole time. Um, I'd spent several months learning Urdu before I went, so I was able to communicate on a much, you know, much richer level. And I was travelling in countries that, really, I, I, I knew a bit already. I already had these connections to. What I've been going to for many years, so it was a very different experience. And I think, um, uh, hopefully, they, they both have have different qualities. But um, mm-hmm. uh, the second book really felt like it it, it needed to be written.
0: So, uh, apart from the familiarity, apart from the, the sensation of comfort that you felt uh, from the top of the world, why were you so compelled to walk up the Indus? I mean, why? What makes the Indus so important? I guess not just for you, but for this part of the world.
1: Well, the, I mean, um, I guess every travel writer tries to find a. Um, something to arrange their journey around. And, mm-hmm. and as a result, a lot of people write about, about following rivers. And actually, I think there's a very good reason for that is that particularly in that part of the world, rivers are hugely important. You know, they are the source of, um, fertility for the land around them. Um, you know, they, they turn the desert into areas where you can grow crops. They're often, um, uh, conduits for, for commerce. um, Uh, and have been for for thousands of years. So they tend to be close to the areas which are sort of rich in a a cultural and historical context. Um, But for me in particular, one of the the things which runs through my books is this fascination with um, religion and how religions have changed and evolved and how people respond Mm -hmm. to religion. Um, And I found that, the Indus really was almost like the the, the birthplace for so many beliefs and um, uh, cultural traditions. Um, and as someone who's you know was a scholar of religious history when I did study history, and somebody who continues to be fascinated in religion, uh, you know the, the river was was absolutely central to that religious experience. So to, I mean, to give a few examples, down in In the south of Pakistan, in Sindh province, um, there's a a very strong uh, Sufi Islam tradition, um, which centers around saints who are poets um, and who have performed miracles. Um, And for so many of these saints' stories were were tied up in the, the river. So the river was where they did their miracles, or the river was where they set their poems, yeah. So it's absolutely central to them. And then moving further up to uh, this, this area of SWAT, which is um, inhabited by the, the Pashtuns, who are the, um, the tribes who live in Pakistan and in Af- Afghanistan. Uh, they have these beliefs around um, magic men. So these are sort of halfway between, um, I guess, uh, folk. Um, um, Miracle makers and Islamic, um, uh, uh, I guess, leaders, um, and they take their power from where two rivers meet. So again, that that you know, the, the idea that water and rivers confer power is um, is important to that relief. And then going further up into the north, you know, on on the riverbanks around, this is up in the Karakoram area. The the stones around the river have this funny. Um, Brown patina, which makes them very good for carving um, things on them. Um, and you can see these carvings that are thousands of years old, and several of them have these um, river god figures. Mm-hmm. So you can see that, you know, th- through, throughout the, the country and throughout different religions that have come and gone, and some are still around and some have, have vanished, the idea that the river sort of confers power and is the. Um, is, is where a lot of religious experience is centred. It, it has always been the case. So mm-hmm. for me, it made it made it, it made it a fascinating route to then follow and um, and come across you know things which I hadn't even read about, which I only um, came across when I was travelling up the river and talking to people.
0: Yeah, I, you know, you would think that when many people in the West, many Americans, uh, I can't speak for the British, but many Americans, when they think of Pakistan, they think probably of extremism and of violence. And early on in your book, I think when you're in Karachi, um, you were there during some sort of um, sectarian violence and attack on a Shia house of worship by the Sunni, and, and you know it was retaliated against. And uh, you made the comment of something to the effect of, "I can't wait to get out of Karachi, where um, you know the religious experience is not just more moderate, but but varied." And I think what you're doing here, um, well, what you just did, and and what you were saying was, you know, you painted a a portrait of the varieties of religious experiences in in Pakistan that might not be too familiar to. Western readers or Western audiences. Was that something that surprised you when you were on your track or had you kind of understood that things are not what they seem?
1: Yeah, it, it was something I, I really wanted to write about. and and uh, you know um, it, it was it was a message I really wanted to to get through in the book that you know when I before I started traveling to Pakistan and just understood the country through what I'd read in the Western press, I believed it to be, you know, a hotbed of fundamentalists, and Mm -hmm. um, and probably a religion that was very, um, that was a sort of a monoculture, you know, um, a very hierarchical, um, puritanical, and unrelenting religion. Now, anyone who goes to Pakistan for for a week will realise that that is absolutely not the case. That Pakistani religious experience is is incredibly rich and varied, and in many areas very, very tolerant. Um, and I often think, you know, it's like a sort of like a tapestry. There are these these layers of um, threads, and you can, you know, you get close to them, and you can see how rich and varied it is. Mm. So I, I really wanted to get across that idea that um, that the Western understanding of what Pakistan's religious um, you know, uh, outlook or um, appearance might be is certainly not the case that it actually is is very different and and I guess another you know um, shorthand people might think is that it's quite an unfriendly place to go and or you know, even a, a dangerous place and again I I really wanted I hope I get across in the book the idea that um there the Pakistanis are among the most hospitable people I've ever come across in all the, the travelling I've done in the world. Um and they have this idea of, of hospitality seems to be at the very center of their um you know their values, um which made it a an incredibly enjoyable place to travel. Yeah. Um and I was often asked, you know, um when I came back, um, you know, did did you not feel at risk? Because, you know, that you do get these um you know there have been terrorist attacks on Westerners and mm-hmm. know, there have been um kidnappings. Um and I have to say that at, at no point in my, my journey did I feel at all at risk. Um uh, and I kind of joke that the the only time when I, I did get into sort of um danger was when I was out trekking um in an area called Kohistan um in the, the middle of Pakistan. Um and I was trying to get to the top of a a mountain that um, had been used as a sort of a fortified base by Alexander the Great, And as I was coming down the mountain, I'd stayed out a bit too long. And as I was coming down, every house I passed, they, they insisted I come in and have tea and chapati and sit with them and talk with them. And as a result, I got halfway down the mountain and it was nighttime and I was stuck out in a thunderstorm. On the side of this mountain, with you know, no uh-huh. idea about how to get down, and and that was the only time really when I probably could have got it, you know, probably could have got into difficulties and and got hurt, and it was a result of too much hospitality. You know, it was being stopped <laughs> and asked into too many houses, but and so um, that's that's what Pakistan is like for for travellers. It's um, because there's not that many tourists still, and because they're so hospitable, it is just the most friendly place to travel. Um, It helped that, you know, if I did, if I was in a big city like Karachi where, you know, like any big city, it's a bit more dangerous. Um, When I've, when I've got a a sort of a a beard and a shawar comedies going on, um, I look to most people like, um, because I'm, you know, quite dark, but not as dark as the Pakistanis. They assume that I'm an Afghan refugee, um and that meant that they just um they would rather ignore me than engage me. so in the big cities, that sort of disguise I think helped um but out in the countryside um they're 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 so friendly and hospitable it's it's a wonderful place to
0: be mm. yeah, we hear uh, reports about the dangers of 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 Kashmir and it's good to to hear your reports that that it's not so and of course, it's always like this, right um uh, you know the you know one of the the main Targets of our kind of collective misunderstanding about travel uh, in the in in the United States is is Mexico. You know, everyone talks about how violent yeah. and dangerous and you know, terrifying a, a place it is to go to, and when you do go, it's you know you learn that it's the opposite. And I guess that's one of the the beauties of travel. Um, so your your adventure from around Karachi up into the Tibetan plateau that must have been. I don't know, a thousand miles or so?
1: Yes, yeah. I mean, including all the details, the, the detours and the, um, the stops, yes, it would have been thousands of miles.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, how, how did you go about on your adventure? Was it mainly on foot or did you take uh, transport, uh, public transport, trains? How did, how did you go about doing that?
1: Really, it, it, it depended on where I was trying to get to. I mean, my, my intention throughout was to have as much contact with um the people who lived in the area as i could um mm-hmm. yeah that's that's where you get the stories and the experience from so um if people were walking to a festival or walking um to to a mountain then i would walk with them um otherwise you know pakistan's um public transport system is um it's not an efficient public transport system, but the result of the delays is that you have huge amounts of time to to talk with people, to share food with people, um, to sit around on train platforms and, um, complain about delays, but, but just have that, those conversations with people. So, um, down in the, on the plains in Sindh and in Punjab, um, I spent a lot of time on, on Pakistani trains up in the mountains, um, it was um, it was transport jeeps or mm-hmm. transport tractors, um, and then for the the high treks, um it was it was walking um, or walking with with donkeys or, occasionally with a with a guide or with with porters for, for the long treks.
0: Sure, I was going to follow up uh, with a question about whether or not your journey was planned, but it seems like it wasn't just well, or planned so uh, rigorously because. You know the delays and the and the issues with transport. So, um, how much time did you have on on this trip?
1: The the journey that it was between four and five months is is the the journey that's described in the book. Um, straight straight through. The reality through? is that straight through, yes. Yeah. Um, but I did go to. Pakistan and to India, both before and after, to sort of fill in some pieces um, mm, okay. beforehand, just to sort of work out where to go. But the the the, the book tells the story of, of a five month journey.
0: Mm-hmm. And and it was just you and uh, your your backpack, basically.
1: That's right. Yeah, and it's. Um, I mean, that's the way to that's the way to travel is to have no time constraints. Um, I mean, uh, that, that was the way I found had created the sort of the purest and most powerful experiences, you know, no time constraints, um, no companions who have a, you know, want to go to a different place or spend more time or less time in one area. Um, That's the way of of really integrating as much as possible with the the people you're traveling
0: among. Mm -hmm. And when you were on on the road, how did you go about doing your writing? Did you bring just trusty pen and paper and take notes at night or how, how did you go about doing that?
1: yeah um well i guess the the sort of range of technologies available um i mean this book was the journey was two thousand and four so this is the days before smartphones really mm. um the days before google maps um so um uh, if i wanted a, an internet connection then I had to find um an internet cafe in um a bigish town or mm. or city um so I didn't have any technology with me at all. It was um, I, I would have a, a small notebook in my in my pocket all the time, and I'd write down words during the day, and then every evening I would sit down with an A4 pad and um, and write write out in longhand you know that day's diary entry, um, and that was a that was a good discipline actually. I mean it was. Um, the sort of things that you can only process, I think, by writing them down. And um, doing that while making the journey, I think, gave me really good raw materials to then use and, and construct into the book later on.
0: Mm. Did you catch any suspicious glances uh, from people when they saw this, Afghanistani, this Afghani-looking <laughs> guy taking notes?
1: Yes, they do. I mean, another thing I did... When I was travelling, is I sketch. Uh, um, so I take a. Um, I've developed a fairly sort of small sketch kit, which has you know a tiny watercolor pad and um, an Indian ink pen, and it allows you to do a very quick drawing, but but also one which is quite evocative. And so I would often, when I got into a new place, I would sit down and and sketch. So that was mainly what they saw me doing. They'd, I would normally do my writing in my in my room alone, so no one would see me there. But but they, the sketching was something I did in public, and that was partly intentional because there's something about sketching that that draws people in in a way that taking a photograph often repels them. Hmm. Um, and by sitting there, you know, you end up getting a bit of a crowd around you, and then they will tell you, "Well, you must go and see this," and "You must come and meet my uncle," and you know, let's go for lunch. So I found that was a very good um, entree to sort of uh, meeting people and and uh, showing that I was there just as a sort of um, fairly eccentric, uh, you know, painter <laughs> as opposed to someone more threatening.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, never thought about that. And you're right. When uh, when you're out traveling and we see somebody, you know, sketching a building, you you, you know that raises a curiosity about the person what they're doing you know you know you want to go see what they're what they're drawing and how well they draw uh, and it draws you in instead of you know when people pull out their cameras you turn your heads like you don't want to <laughs> you don't want to be in their that's right snapshots yeah
1: so. yeah and i think it's something that um you know that all of us have done at some point in our lives it's kind of universal experience whereas you know an expensive camera can often it can feel like a divide, you know, the rich tourist and the, mm. um, the people who are there who are being sort of photographed and then left. So no, I think I would recommend it to anyone as a way of sort of, um, just taking the time to experience a place and, uh, and a accomplish- conversation smarter. Mm.
0: I was wondering if you could, um, read a short passage from the book for us.
1: Yeah, of course. Um, so I've, um, I've got about a page and a half um, which from about halfway through the book. Now, um, this tells um, part of the story of one of the longer treks I did around a mountain called Manga Parbat. Um, Manga Parbat um, uh, a huge mountain in Pakistan. It's the ninth highest mountain in the world. Um, and it was particularly important to my journey because... Um, the Indus River essentially runs east and then makes a big right angle in Pakistan and runs south all the way down to the sea. And Nanga Parbat is the mountain uh, at which it makes this this right angle turn. Um, so it's very important to determining the course of the Indus River. So I spent about two weeks um, walking around Nanga Parbat. Um, and one of the, I guess, one of the difficulties with Nanga Parbat is um, you pass through in your route around the mountain lots of different areas which are um, lived in by different tribes and often those tribes don't get on very well together Mm. Um, so when you're going around the mountain they refuse to let porters from the the previous territory into their territory so you end up having to swap porters all the way around Um, and the the friend and guide I took was a, a man called Mirsa who was a friend of mine who lived in Gilgit he had never made this route before. He was an experienced trekker, but he didn't know this particular route. So we were relying on these um different porters that we got each day to, to tell us which way to go. And sometimes that, that worked better <laughs> than at other times. <laughs> so um this day we'd been we've been told that our two porters were they were both about thirteen or fourteen. Um one was called Fida and the other one was called Raji. Um and they were Chilassi, so they could only really speak um, Chilasi dialect to my friend Mirsa um, and this is us um, setting out to, to cross a pass so I asked um, ask Mirsa how many times have they been over the pass he replied they have never been all the way over Fida says that he has been part the way up once to find a missing goat is there a path Chilasi words were exchanged There may be a path somewhere, but he did not see it because he was following the goat. We are not on the path. Niasa smiled embarrassedly. He was meant to be the guide, and he felt bad that he did not have experience of this route. Unstable fallen rocks lay on larger rocks that in turn rested on the rock that was the mountain. This path was too bare and too new for earth. The slabs ground and shifted as we stepped on them, but mostly they were still frozen together in the early morning frost. Fida and Raji ran ahead to get warm, their plastic shoes making a little tap with each step. We climbed for an hour. The gradient increased and the rocks that we walked on got more precarious. Now I was using my hands with each step, my walking poles stuck into the waistband of my rucksack. At one point, Frida and Raji lost their nerve and sat on a ledge and told Mirsa that this was as far as the goats had come and maybe there was no way through. But by this time, the prospect of going back was even more awful than continuing on up. So Mirsa and I clambered grimly on and the boys followed. It was a relief when at last we reached the dry rocks of the ridge. From here, we could see the daimier face, its rocky edge and central snowfield puffy with sculpted meringues of refrozen spindrift laid down by layer upon layer of storm near the top the snow could not lie as thick and pale blue creases showed where the cornice had bulged and avalanched the other side was gentler gradient and going down we were tired and careless with our feet and let rocks fall hopping and spinning with the smell of fireworks then hitting the snow patches further down and sending up white splashes all the way to the bottom. The glacier gave way to firm ground. First, there were rock slabs, and then there was dusty earth and between the rocks. And as the slope grew shallower, the earth bore flowers and scrubby grass. It was still barren, but after two days above 13,000 feet, it was like a garden full of color and the smells of life and
0: safety. Well, very well. Thank you so much for reading that. And I want to be respectful of your time. Can you uh, tell us where we can find you online and how to connect with you?
1: Yes, um, uh, I- I'm on Twitter. That's probably the best re- way to reach me. Uh, my handle is at Ian underscore G underscore Campbell. Um, one thing to note is that Ian is spelled I-A-I-N. Um, uh, and Campbell C A M P B E W L.
0: Very good. Well, we'll put that in the show notes. And um, I understand you have a an award ceremony coming up in a week or two.
1: That's right. Yes, the um, the award ceremony is on Wednesday of next week. Um, so it's down in the in the Transport Museum in London.
0: Are you so, gonna uh, Are you gonna go to that?
1: I'll be there. I'll be there. Um, looking forward to meeting the other, um, the other people on the shortlist. Um, and there's there's some wonderful books on that shortlist as well. So um, it's it's Indeed. pretty tough competition, but uh, it'll be good to be there.
0: Indeed. Well, uh, good luck with that, and wish you all the best. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on the on the show. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash travelwritingworld. Thanks for your support.